Welcome to the ESG Matters podcast. My name is Ahmad Gomez and I am your host. Today we have Charles Ashwaden, Crux Asset Management and ESG Lead. Crux Asset Management offers a managed data engineering service that helps organizations scale their most critical data delivery operations and transformation needs. Welcome to the podcast, Charles. Thank you, Amal. And thank you so much for inviting me today. It's lovely to meet you. I hope we can have a, an interesting discussion. Same here. I think just a level set. Can you give a little bit of your background and the work that you do? Yes, of course. I've actually worked in financial data for all of my career. So for around 30 years, I, I've been working in financial data. And predominantly in the last sort of 12, 13 years, I've been increasingly involved with, with ESG and the definitions of ESG. I now lead financial services and ESG at Crux. And Crux is a is really a data integration business. So we specialize integrating external third-party data into large businesses. And really, I think, you know, we I'm very lucky because I get to work with lots of large organizations who are trying to integrate and trying to understand how to integrate ESG, ESG and sustainability data into their day-to-day activities and into their business workflows. So thinking about what you just discussed and talking about the background of data integration and how important that is when we think about ESG, what is some of the best data governance strategies that a company can implement given the increased regulatory and, and stakeholder scrutiny that we see coming out of the United States, but probably even much more out of the EU and the UK? What are some of those best practices that especially public companies should start to implement when thinking about data governance strategies? I think from a corporate perspective, I think understanding and aiming to exceed what those regulatory reporting requirements are, at both an entity, company, and a geographic level, is a very important start. And it's really regardless of what sector they're in. Some immediate wins that I think come to mind is things like the supply chain and carbon footprint. I say easy wins if fairly easy wins. I guess where the standards aren't yet well defined or where there's sort of a cross-border requirement, I think adopting an existing framework, such as something like the GRI, Global Reporting Initiative, um, is a great start. It's clear, it helps by sector. And I think the earlier that firms start to do that, and the more granular approach they take, the easier that they will find it is to incorporate, you know, the E, the S and the G uh, now and in the future. I think for larger, you, you mentioned sort of, sort of uh, public companies, I think for larger, those larger and more complex companies, you know, they need to ensure that the governance, they address governance at a board, a strategically at a board level, in a similar way to the way that they would address, you know, any other form of governance, such as for material risk, such as such as accounting standards. And, and I think that's that's where you're going to see this going forward. I think increasingly that that's where it's going. Data, as, as with all these things, data, I think is key because it helps it, it definitely is helping firms make better decisions and guide those judgments you know and, and again whether that's supply chain data or, or benchmarking against peers from a reporting perspective the more sort of joined up and strategic firms can appear around that sort of issue around those issues the more appealing they are from both an investor from an investor perspective and i think a very sort of fundamental part of that from a corporate from the large corporate perspective is also their, their sort of data maturity you know we we work with with very immature businesses all the way through to the most mature so immature businesses who would use you know information data on an ad hoc basis 
if you like, to support a decision as opposed to, you know, and they don't have that data particularly well stitched into their workflow. It's a sort of, we need this data to make a decision and we want to incorporate it to those where actually they have the intelligence already derived from the data, which is already stitched into their processes. And those are, those are very interesting, two very interesting juxtapositions, because obviously the, the, the most mature organisations are those that can act have that flexibility they have that intelligence and they can move more ag- in a more agile way as well um, and i think that that has a real impact that has a real impact on, on on all stakeholders and potential on all stakeholders and potential investors i would also say that that going forward i think what we're going to see is that we historically have associated stakeholders as financial investors and i i hope over time that we start to relate stakeholders to a broader community which includes employees and and the local communities i think you know if we look there are some firms some of the bigger firms out there who are already making really big strides to to engage and incorporate the desires and wishes of uh, and the direction of, of those other sort of wider stakeholders and and over time i i i suspect that that's actually going to become quite an important part of a corporations sort of play both to the investor, the investors, and to their other stakeholders, the employees or future employees of, of the business. So one thing I think that's really interesting that you brought up was when you're talking about the sort of the standards that are out there, GRI being one of them, and that, you know, I used to be responsible for reporting for one of the larger Fortune 100 companies in the U.S., and I'll say that getting that data oftentimes was very difficult, mainly because people really didn't see the value in providing it. Mm-hmm. And it was hard for people to understand that this is not necessarily just an activity that is a check the box exercise. But but this also goes back to what you're saying about the larger organizations is that if you get quality data, you can make better decisions based on that data and have quantitative and qualitative exercises that you can point to to say, this is why we're doing said action, or this is the end result of these actions, and have that benchmark against your peers. So I'm, I'm curious when you are making the case for better data management, especially when it comes to ESG, when you talk about those firms that are more nascent in their in their data gathering journey, what are the conversations or some of the hindrances that they bring up? Is it more so they've never had this and all of this is just very new to them, but they're eager to try it? Or is it something that they're saying, I don't want to provide this information because of business competition reasons, or you know, this is just a check the box exercise for us. We don't see a value in it. So I'm curious as to that that conversation that you're having with those companies that are more nascent in their in their journey when it comes to leveraging data. And then when you think about that maturity level for clients who are able to make those more agile decisions, what has been sort of the the key difference in their approach that you would identify almost as a best practice that you wish other companies would adopt when it comes to that process? I think that's absolutely a great question. I think this is one of the fundamental issues that we face, you know, where we are right now. And that is that people see this as a box ticking exercise. I was brutally honest with this and say that realistically, within the space that we exist, those immature businesses struggle. They struggle to to take on board and strategically buy into the idea that they should have integration of all this data and this expense. As far as they're concerned, it's cost. 
why should they have this cost to integrate to, to do something that they don't see the value in? And so I think that is something that we do see. We do see where firms are driven to talk to us by whatever reason they feel that they should, because the markets are telling them they should integrate more data to make better decisions. And yet when they are at that stage of maturity, that really, really immature stage where strategically they haven't integrated that, the idea of sustainability into their decision-making process, into their governance, and and they don't have that high-level buy-in and they don't believe that it's going to provide that benefit or the payback, then really what we find is that they disengage. So, so we end up working with those that, that are further up the maturity scale that already have an understanding, at least some form of understanding and some form of belief that by integrating the, that wider intelligence into their decision-making process, by reporting to more standards or to greater levels of granularity, that they're going to get something back. Okay, And, and that's, that's the reality of this. And I think that the complexities of the standardization of the world as it is today, with you know, whether it's SASB, GRI, the SEC's disclosures on, stand, on, on climate, all of the different standards that there are. The, I think someone said to me there are 42 recognized standards now across the globe. Where does one start? And that, that's the challenge. But I think before we get to those parts, you know, there has to be this, this sort of this sea change at a strategic level from a corporate perspective to see benefit in actually being able to measure or to monitor and measure sustainability ESG factors to ensure that actually there is something and to believe that there's some benefit at the far end of doing so that they can have an improvement there and it will help them in some way. And I think that's the biggest one of the biggest challenges we, we, we face today. Yeah, I, I didn't realize there were there were some 42 various recognized standards across the globe. That's kind of both scary and interesting in the sense that you, it shows that everyone is struggling with trying to, one, create something that applies to either a locality or an industry, but then also trying to have some type of key differences that speaks to the real variances that are available based on geography or, or industry. Yeah. And, and that's hard at times, yeah. right? I, I think it is. I think the the other thing is that, you know, we if we look at what's happened in Europe with the uh, Ukraine-Russian sort of conflict over the last few years, you know, if we look back at what defined our own beliefs as being sustainable and, and, and ESG friendly before that conflict, there would be probably, if you look at the number of people who would have said that, yeah, OK, a stock which is an armaments firm is not particularly attractive. Now, as a result of that that conflict, the immediate response has been that actually suddenly everyone's loosened their feelings towards an armament. So and says, well, in the right context, this is sustainable. So there we see a society, a society as a result of society changing its view as a reaction to something, the view about whether something is sustainable or not, it, it changes. So and that we see that all over the place. But but I just think that we've got so many of these conflicts of what is good and what is bad. What is, you know, to to one person, a a gambling stock may be the worst sin. Another may not see it as anything, any big deal. It's the same as anything. We all have different views about what what constitutes good and bad in our our own environments. And I think that ESG is is one of those areas. And the multiplicity of standardisation is effectively, a lot of that is down to the qualitative, and this actually goes to another issue, which is qualitative or quantitative data. And and actually, 
when when we're asking for qualitative data, how much of that is objective? How much of that is statistically measurable? And how much is just padding? I mean, I've, I've had a lot of experience looking at some of the US consumer firm, top consumer firms, disclosures and the amount of padding within those within those documents is phenomenal but it doesn't it doesn't bear belief it doesn't really hold out any water and and then when you actually come down to looking at the qualitative the quantitative pieces rather than the qualitative pieces there are so many differentials in terms of the way that they actually address things that comparing like with like is almost impossible and that's just in the US across one sector where you know that you would have thought that this would be a fairly easy thing to do across a sector and it and it's not Yeah. So I guess to that point, one of my questions for you would be based on all these different ESG data frameworks that you see, do you see any, you you talked about GRI being one, but are there any other sort of that you see that could be applied more internationally or more widespread that could be a way to have at least a certain base level that maybe more companies could could use as a reaction towards like TCFD or, or, or other ones like that? I think TCFD is a good example. I think um, SASB is another good example. I think from a market cap perspective, when the SEC climate disclosure comes on stream, when that decision's been made and those those are passed, then that's going to have an impact as well. Because I think that you know money speaks. Money money is what's going to push this through. And if if the large US corporates that make up such a large percentage of the market cap of the world have to adhere to certain reporting standards, that will mean others do too. I think it's very interesting. It's just one of those things I sort of noticed. Just, just really, if we think the accounting reporting standards that we all that we think the international accounting reporting standards that all of our corporates now comply to, it was only in 1973. And that sounds a long time ago for many, I'm sure, but it was only in 1973 that 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 the actual accounting standards came together. So before that, it was just this diverse, different group of accounting standards set out by local regulators in a very similar way to, to what we're looking at here with, with standardize with, with ESG and sustainability and I think that standardization process we, we've still got a fair way to go on that standardization process but I think there is increasingly you know a demand and I think that again if we look at the big four accounting firms who now have substantial practices helping with ESG, in inverted commas, compliance, I think increasingly we'll see this actual sort of focus coming down onto external third party qualified validation of compliance that people will seek to avoid the DWS, BNY, Goldman Sachs situation. Maybe not quite those guys, but there'll be more from a corporate perspective. There'll be more of that focus on getting qualified, getting getting some audited, you know, get something audited and stamped um, by somebody else so that you can waive that to people and say, look, this is what I've done to achieve my compliance. I think part of that, though, one thing that I would say when it comes to that level of auditing or or transparency, that having a third party auditor come in and say that, yes, these standards, this company has met these standards and how they are addressing these conversations in some type of SEC filing, I wonder which company will be the, because there's so much greenwashing that happens from a lot of companies. And you talked about it, especially in the, in the consumer sort of goods sector, that I wonder which company will be the first to be the quote unquote Enron of, of this, right? Where you have a company that is extremely well known. They built their brand around this. They have 
all these great metrics and measures that everyone agrees to, but yet when you peel back a few layers of that onion, it's really rotten. And I think that's one of the issues that you see with a lot of companies, especially in the US, where it's not necessarily non-compliance because they don't want to, it is because there isn't a particular, there's not a disincentive to for non-compliance. And there's also, even though there is starting to be much more of a focus on this, there isn't real strong audit trail that you need to have. Because a lot of times when you're auditing this in the U.S., whether it be for CDP or other places, it's the process that's being audited. And so you can change a baseline, you can change your your fence line, whatever you want, as long as you are upfront about it, which is good, but it doesn't necessarily address the heart of the matter. And same thing when you're buying, you know, renewable energy credits, or even when you think about, to your point earlier, when there's more larger systemic issues, such as the war in Ukraine and a company, how does this company's social and governance policies or procedures take that into account, right? So like realistically, a company that said we are against arms, when a conflict occurs, that stance should not change, but they should say, what we will do is we will look for nonprofits to to help. This is how we've helped the company. We've helped the Ukrainian company. Maybe we have uh, partnered with them to help get their people out of the war zone or something like that, where that's something they could say, this is how we are addressing the sustainable development goals that we adhere to, we agree to adhere to, or this is how it meets our material topics that we've identified through a materiality assessment according in the uh, GRI reporting requirements thereof. So I think that there's a lot of opportunities for advancement, but there's also a need for people to, especially for senior leaders and companies, to really use this as a tool as opposed to a check-the-box exercise. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think if you think about Enron, what happened to Enron as a result of that, that actually is something that hangs over. And I suspect that's really why, as a business, we're seeing an incredible demand from those large financial institutions that looked at the DWS, the Bank BNY Mellon, and the, the Goldman Sachs sort of outcomes. And they are now throwing huge amounts of time and money at, at trying to solve this because, or, or solve their part of this, which is the integration of all this data. Because actually, this goes back to the heart of the matter as far as they're concerned. And this is where money talks. And we have these huge debates. And in the US, you have these huge debates as well about where does the fiduciary stop? at a state level where state says it's not going to invest with BlackRock because BlackRock have made a stance about ESG. I mean, you know, you've got these sort of questions coming out. And so all of these organisations, these large financial organisations have an absolute, you know, it, it's code red right now to get this information right so they know where they stand. And in some respects, it's, uh, you know, uh, I look at this and I'm sure you're the same. You, one looks at this and you go, well, hold on a moment. We're questioning whether there's going to be an Enron moment with the corporates. And yet the financial firms are actually plumbing this data into their systemic processes to produce outcomes that then allow them to stand up on a pedestal and say, I'm this or I'm that. And I think there are some very, very, you know, there are going to be a lot of questions. There are a lot, there's a lot more questions to come out around the greenwashing issue. And I would also go so far as to claim that actually a lot of the financial firms are moving away from green, pure greenwashing. They're moving into it. I'm going to give you a new term they're moving into green wishing, where they believe, or they want us to believe, and they want themselves to believe, they have green credentials, but and they're not 
purposely going out of their way to greenwash, but they're hopeful. They're not perhaps using all of the information because it's not available. So that's almost green wishing, if you like. There you are. New one for you. Well, I, I've seen what you would consider green wishing in action often. You see that a lot with companies who are setting these large, audacious net zero or science-based target goals for 2050 or 2040. And they, in the spirit of transparency, they are quite upfront about, we don't know exactly how we'll get there, but we will get there. Yeah. And that I think sort of goes back to some, some of the early days in sustainability when companies would set these goals that people were like, what's the roadmap? Mm. And no one knew, but everything kind of worked its way out in a very entrepreneurial spirit. But I think we, as a sort of group of people who work in this field, there needs to be a certain level of pushback to say, well, we at least need to say, this is how we will, if, what are we going to do with the Delta, right? Like what are the models looking like if we do X, Y, Z action by 2020, by 2020, by 2030, and what does the Delta look like? Because there will be excess amount. And are you using an intensity model? If so, how are you addressing the baseline? And what no one really wants to say is that this is going to cost money to mitigate, whether it be through purchasing uh, more sustainable energy sources, whether that means looking at your facilities and, and really figuring out, do you need to rent as many facilities as you have? Or can you maybe do a flex work situation? What are those real systems in place that need to change? And oftentimes you're, these goals means that you're changing a lot of the fundamental ways in which companies have operated. Yes. And if you don't want to do that, you're going to have to just basically buy your way out of this situation. And if you do that, that goes back to the need for better data. How are you going to make sure that whatever carbon that you're offsetting is actually being offset? How, how is that process? Yes. Yeah. These are all challenges, exactly as you say. I think that we will get there. I, I'm a believer. I'm sure most of us in the industry are hopeful. We are believers that we will get to a point improves the current situation and doesn't go back on where we've come from. But I think that the challenges, every single time you go down a, a path, you go down a road, you see that there are other things that come up. And, and exactly as you've just said, you know, when you look at your carbon offsets and you think, well, I can do carbon offsets. Well, okay, well, where are those carbon offsets coming from? Are they real? And so I think that it's it's all part of the same, same sort of challenge. At the end of the day, the lucky thing for us and for where I sit is that I'm probably like you, I'm an observer really to everybody participating in the market. And we can all we can do is say, look, these are all the, you know, this is just how everyone else is doing things. We're not commenting on what's good or what's bad. I tend to be able to say the more data you can integrate, the more processes that you can look at, the better for your business. Because the more you can monitor it, the more you can measure and, and manage that whole process. And whether that be a, you know, whether that be from you know a supply chain perspective, where we're looking at a firm looking at its supply chain and asking us to provide data on the supply chain, or whether it's, as we do with a lot at the moment, it's the financial, it's, it's a large financial institution who are looking at the 400, 500 providers, recognised providers of, of ESG and sustainability data today. They want to integrate in some way to provide them with intelligence, better intelligence to make good decisions. We're lucky. I don't have to be, we can comment from the sidelines and we're not actually, you know, it's not me that's, it's, it's not my head in the noose that's making the decision as what's, what's right and what's wrong on this, which is a great thing, I think. Well, well, thinking about that though, for people 
who once they have the data, once they have leveraged your systems in place to create a really rich data source, but then they have to present that information in a digestible way to senior leaders who often, you know, they're getting paid to make hard decisions succinctly. And I wonder when you've been in this process, what have you seen as either key metrics or how to present this information to senior leaders who oftentimes do not have, they may have a financial background because that's professionally how they grew up, or they may have came from supply chain, but what are some of the metrics or ways in which to present this information that really, that you've seen companies do successfully that help senior leaders understand and make changes that are recommended? That's a great question. I think we rely very much on the teams of of analysts that we work with, put the data into a format and into intelligent, into a form of intelligence that allows some succinct decision making. I don't think that there is, there's certainly not one size fits all to that question. And and what I would say is that from, I was in a panel with someone from HSBC recently, and, and she she summed up one of the other big problems that we have as an industry as, as they have as an industry, which is that finding good financial analysts is tough. Good finding good financial analysts with any understanding or experience of ESG is even tougher. Understanding uh, finding any of those analysts who have an understanding of ESG and who can actually report on it is a tiny subfraction. And those that have an understanding of the implement implications of that onto a line of business is fractional, is, is tiny. And that actually goes to the heart of the problem. I think a lot of the time, you know, in answer to your question, I don't think there is a one size fits all because actually nobody knows. It, it, everyone is still finding their way around this. Uh, it very much depends on line of business as to what is what they believe they need. A portfolio management team, the CIO is going to want something very different to the CEO of a bank, although they will have the same sort of end result. But again, if we look at a supply chain, they're going to have something, you know, the, the CEO will have a different requirement again. And each one of those has a different in, in individual view as to what it is they actually want and, and the emphasis that they want to see from the data. And, and it really is just sort of, it, it's the combining of those different data sources that is the biggest challenge today because of the fact that there is so, it is such a difficult task across both listed and unlisted securities and across public and privately released data uh, or information. So gathering that and consolidating it and, and matching it all together and transforming it into something that can be used is probably the biggest challenge. When it gets there, the actual analysis of that and the, the presentation of, of that as a presentation layer is usually left to the individual. It, it, it's, it's less, it's where the data scientists step in and the, and the deep analysts, the ESG analysts step in. But the state before that, which is, if you like, the heavy lifting, the, the integration, the stitching together of that, is is really um, is the time consuming part that actually is that's the that's the if you like that's the sort of time consuming part. It's not the that's not the brain focused part, I guess. Charles, thank you so much for being a guest on the ESG Matters podcast. I think we had a really great and strong discussion that people who listen to this will learn a lot from, and I know I learned a lot from it as well. So I thank you once again for being a guest on today's podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.